I refuse to take heat for this. Someone said, well, what are you using your radio show and audience for this? I said, use the radio show for information, getting remembering where quotes come from, but why not find a great Hungarian restaurant? Maybe Michael Rubin will go with me sometime. <laughs> Michael Rubin, would you go with me to a great Hungarian restaurant if we found one? Why not? I've, had, I've been to Icelandic restaurants, and anything's got to be better than that. <laughs> you don't have to ask for it frozen, right? It comes from no, absolutely. And you know that if it was just frozen with Icelandic food, that would be okay. But you can do a Google search on some of Icelandic cuisine afterwards. Yeah, well, we will hold that off for a while. Uh, let me clarify before we talk to Michael. Uh, what I was trying to say at the end, I ran out of time. Is as far as I'm concerned, whatever Trump says about immigration, he still ought to be out of the picture because he's you know, he's not team players, refused to take the, the make the promise that he won't run as an independent, which means he has refused to say he will not do everything in his power to destroy the Republican candidate, which is what a third party run means. Anyway, that's for further discussion. We'll talk about that with Byron York. I want to talk about my, uh, to Michael Rubin about a number of things. But, you know, we usually talk about the Middle East. But remember, Michael Rubin, is an expert on things. One of the reasons he's an expert on things is he reads so much. And one way that he reads is to read and have the possibility of reading secure documents. Uh, is that fair to say, Michael? You've, you've read your share of secure documents? Uh, back in my day, yes. Back in your day. Tell us how this works and tell us how this works vis-a-vis Hillary Clinton, because you wrote a very interesting piece on this. Uh, the email scandal goes deeper than Hillary. Well, when we were when we're talking about Hillary Clinton and what might be in her emails, we're really talking about, according to the Inspector General, all different levels of classification. The way the U.S. government tends to organize things is you have different computer terminals. Uh, you have computer terminals or hard drives for unclassified information, then for low-level classified, for example, confidential or secret information, and then you have completely separate terminals for top secret or SCI, secure um, compartmentalized information, for example, uh, um, signals, intercepts, the telephone calls, that sort of thing. Now, here's the interesting thing. While it's all well and good to say that if Hillary Clinton had actually cut and pasted um, classified, the contents of classified um, material into her computer, what that means is someone had to willfully go to one terminal and remove that information with either a USB port or a CD to another terminal. Now, in the U.S. government, it's almost under all circumstances illegal to use USB ports because of the um, the risk that you can spread viruses. Right. right. Okay. The question is, number one, were any of his, her aides willfully doing this in order to use uh, any of these more advanced computer terminals? You have to actually sign forms. So the the statement which Hillary Clinton has made that she had never actually signed these forms is irrelevant because her aides must have, or else they would have had no ability or they should have had no ability to reach these terminals. At the same time, it's a breakdown in the State Department security system because they're supposed to be monitoring use. And if someone's downloading information, that's an automatic red flag. Sometimes there's reason to download information, but sometimes there's not. But at the very least, 
you got to have to have a security guy who comes knocking on your door. And if for any reason they didn't do that to Hillary or more likely Jake Mills or uh, Jake Sullivan or Cheryl Mills or Huma Abedin, then that's a much broader okay. breakdown within the State Department hierarchy. Okay, another dimension of this. I want to be sure before I play this, because this is about uh, about a minute or so, that uh, it's two minutes actually, that you can stay another segment, can you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because I want you to listen to this. This is this was on CNN International, interviewing Bob Bear from the CIA. He's not someone I know or I'm close to. I, I I don't even particularly agree with him a lot of the time. I think his politics are liberal. But I found this an amazing interview. I'm going to ask Michael to listen and then to explain to us um, the, the specifics. It'll be obvious what we're after here. Here's the interviewer, CNN International, talking to Bob Baer, CIA. Joining us down from Telluride, Colorado, is CNN intelligence and security analyst Bob Baer. Thanks so much for being with us. You are a career spy. You know all about secrets. So I want to ask you about the secrets that apparently made their way somehow into the Secretary of State's possession. She said nothing was marked classified, but apparently at least two of the documents have been traced back to documents that were marked top secret, S-I-T-K, no foreign. This is gobbledygook to most of us, but what, are the, what does this mean to you? It means a lot to me. Uh, you don't get any, any more secret than that. Uh, TK is talent keyhole, relates to satellite, very classified satellite photography, SI special intelligence, which could relate to code breaking at the National Security Agency. Even Snowden didn't get into that. And if this, in fact, was on a private server, you and I'd get fired and possibly jailed. This could be a felony. Well, it's not clear on the basis of the information publicly available whether she knew that the information was marked this way. The information did get to her, but she is saying as Secretary of State, she didn't see any reason for alarm. Uh, should we believe it? Uh, if this was on her server and it got into her uh, her smartphone, um, there's a big problem there. Seriously, if, if I had sent a document like this over the open Internet, I'd get fired the same day, escorted the door, and gone for good and probably charged with mishandling classified information. Now, there's a school of thought that says the U.S. government does things um, crudely. Uh, it's a big instrument. It's not always a precise one. State Department handles thousands of documents a day. I, I understand what you're saying. Should anyone think, well, these things happen, sometimes um, stuff drops through the cracks? No. Um, when I was overseas at various stations, I had encrypted communications, and I wasn't even allowed to receive documents like this over highly encrypted communications. We were worried about leakage and the rest of it, storage, leaving it in hard drives. It, it couldn't be sent from Washington. This is very, very serious stuff. And in the discipline of the national security establishment, you never let this stuff out of your hands, and especially on a handheld. And and if, if this, in fact, were on her handheld, was sent to her, or she forwarded any way, I'm, I wonder if she's capable of being president. Wow. that You think this is a deal breaker for her candidacy? Uh, as a national security employee, a former one, yes. I mean, this I can't tell you how bad this is. And I, you know, a lot of things get talked about, a lot of gossip, but having documents like this sent across the Internet that could be hacked very easily and probably were hacked is, is, a, is a transgression that I don't think the President of the United States should be allowed to you know, to, to have committed. Let's go back to Michael Rubin for uh, Michael's uh, analysis and explanation. Michael, any reaction to that? 
Sure. I mean, when it comes to classified documents, there's often complaints that the United States over-classifies right, documents. Right. The reason why you're supposed to classify documents is to protect sources and methods. When it comes to um, signals intelligence or satellite imagery, the reason why we classify yeah. these is yeah. if someone knows that we're listening to their phone calls, then they stop. You, um, then we know we've broken their codes, or they stop using that phone. That's why it's so highly classified. Now that's the exact category in the U.S. government, which is not overclassified, which you have to protect the most, and that's what Bob Bear is after. Now, among some of the policy discussions and so forth, sometimes people classify that to keep it out of the press. That's not what we're talking about here, and that's what Hillary Clinton and her aides should have known. If it was simply forwarded to Hillary, it doesn't make it any less um, of a violation. That's what's important to know. Now, the last point I would make, Bill, is oftentimes in the government, when you have all these working papers going around for the sake of ease, people, people will keep classifications off of them until the final draft. Uh, just so that you can share them and get more yeah. people to chop yeah. on them and so forth. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about exposing what we know and intelligence methods, and that's something that, I mean, we're not talking about thousands of documents a day doing this. We're talking about a very few select ones. And so, so Bob Baer, who, like you, I normally disagree with politically, is absolutely correct on this issue. It, there is no more severe violation other than willfully selling this to a foreign state. So if this were uh, if this were true, and if this is what's happened, uh, she should, could be taken. Arguably, could be taken out of the running because this is a very serious offense. I used to have these clearances when I was drug czar. We, you know, we're in the international business. We used to get stuff from around the world, and uh, I had these clearances. I remember the reams of paper I had to read and sign and understand before I could even get to look at them. Well, absolutely. When I used to look at this sort of thing, I mean, we would just have a briefing book with printed out hard copies, and you would have to sign in, and people would know what you looked at, and you would have to sign out. And if any of that information leaked, I mean, people would know, hey, there's just a handful of people that had access to this document. When you're circulating it on an unclassified system, you lose that sort of control. Well, she's got serious trouble here, doesn't she? She and, again, much more specifically, um, her aides and the security managers in the State Department, the normal civil servants who should not have allowed anyone from Hillary Clinton's team, even if she was Secretary of State, onto any of these terminals unless okay. they had first dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's on the paperwork. Yeah, I guess uh, what you were saying earlier, we're talking to Michael Rubin, resident scholar at AEI, a senior lecturer at the Naval Postgraduate School, author of Dancing with the Devil. I suppose they might have sent some memos around to her without taking with, and took off the classifications, right? Is that well, possible? and that's what it seems she's saying when she's saying none of this. I mean, with the Clintons, unfortunately, you have to always um, yes. figure out what the meaning of it is. Is and when she's saying at no time when I saw this were these marked classified. I mean, that's that's too clever by far because that's something that. Um, I, I mean, certainly doesn't hold any water with the security team, and I know for a fact doesn't hold any water because, uh, for the FBI. Because we, if you looked at it, you would know that it was the product of such such uh, secure sources? When it talks about um, when it has anything that exposes sources and methods, absolutely. Okay. There's a little bit more wiggle room if you're just having a policy discussion you don't want to leak to the press. 
I got you. All right, we're talking to Michael Rubin. You can, too. Give us a call at 866-680-6464. We've got a minute left here. I just wanted to touch on this. I, I thought of you first when the president said that uh, Khamenei is just another political guy, you know? Just he's been around politically, and he's just another guy you can make a deal with. Quickly on that. Not true, right? Absolutely not true. I mean, Khamenei considers himself, if you do the theology, the deputy of the Messiah on Earth. His, his, um, right. his, his try that in the great, Iowa it's primary. It's great on your business card if you can get it. Yeah, try but, that um, in the Iowa primary, right. right yeah, absolutely. Ahead. But, you know, I mean, that means that his sovereignty comes not from the people. It comes from God. And the Revolutionary Guard is meant to protect him from the will of the people, because the sovereignty from God means much, much more. Yeah. Now, the irony here is not only is President Obama making a mistake with this mirror imaging, but the nature of the deal is such that it's going to strengthen the Revolutionary Guard against the ability of the people to exert their will and to hold their leadership to account, um, accountable. This morning in America, welcome back. Michael Rubin stays with us. We're talking about the Hillary server. We're talking about uh, the bad Iran deal. We're talking about the Middle East. One of the uh, staples, Michael, it seems in uh, almost every um, Republican, indeed most of the Democrats' uh, arsenal here talking about uh, ISIS and so on, is let the Kurds do it. Let the Kurds fight it. Uh, but uh, careful, right? Uh, good Kurds, bad Kurds. Better. Some Kurds are better than others. Well, absolutely. Not all Kurds are the same. And sometimes they can get in the way. What you've got is a situation where the Kurds have received a heck of a lot of military equipment. And in one of my AEI blog posts... From us? From us? uh, From us, from um, the British, from NATO, from all sorts of places. And I give an inventory of this. And because it does have to fly first to Baghdad, but it never sits on the tarmac in Baghdad for more than 12 hours. Usually it's just within an hour or two it goes forward. Now what scares me is, you know, you got a political crisis brewing in Iraqi Kurdistan this week because the presidency expires, the president's term expires on August 19th, and he's refused to step down. The president of Iraqi Kurdistan is Masoud Barzani. Now, what he did last week is he took a bunch of military equipment and just, I mean, deployed into the center of his main capital of Erbil, and it raised a lot of questions. Why does most of this military equipment look brand new, and why isn't it at the front fighting the Islamic State? And this has been the source of a lot of concern, because it seems that the Kurds are stockpiling a lot of equipment to support politicians and political militias, rather than actually um, deploying it where it's needed. So the question is, if you're going to support the Kurds, A, do you do it directly, or do you do it through Baghdad, knowing that under Prime Minister Abadi, it gets to Kurdistan anyway? And number two, is it simply enough to deliver the weaponry, or do you actually have to put people in their war room and their logistics center to make sure that they simply don't... um, I mean, stockpile this stuff. At the same time, the Syrian Kurds, who are not really supporting, are the ones who have the much greatest, the greatest success against the Islamic State, which is kind of ironic. Yes, I'm not sure I follow all of this. Is it just sitting there, this new equipment, or is it being used to fight against someone else other than ISIL, ISIS? Well. Yes and yes. The important thing to understand about the Peshmerga, we always talk about the Peshmerga, uh, which is the Iraqi Kurdish militia, it literally means those who face death, is it's not a unitary organization. It's not like we can talk about the U.S. Army. It's almost as if it's a collection of National Guards, and each National Guard unit is loyal to a different politician. So what we're doing is deploying, is sending all of this equipment to, in theory, 
the Iraqi Peshmerga, but it's all going to one militia. Now, wow. I happen to go to Kirkuk quite a bit, and that's a city in the crosshairs of the Islamic State, and I'm told by the politicians in Kirkuk that none of the donated equipment has actually made it to the front line over the past several months. Well, uh, how do we deliver it then? Where should it go? Uh, should it go into Baghdad, or should it go via somewhere else? Or is this just the Council of Despair? I mean, is this just not the way to fight this war? Well, number one, I'd say it should go through Baghdad, because otherwise what you do is you allow all the hardline factions to make to basically tell the Iraqi okay. prime minister, you work with the Americans and they're screwing you over. Second of all, once it goes to Erbil, and this is the same thing that's true for delivering it to Baghdad or any place else, you don't just land the plane offload it on the tarmac and say your goodbyes. You have to make sure that you have people in the war rooms and that you have them in the logistical centers to make sure that the equipment is going where it needs to go. Otherwise, whether it's the Iraqi army, whether it's the Shiite militias, whether it's the Iraqi Kurds, they're all going to play games with us. Can they win this thing on their own? They can win this thing with American air power. At the very least, they're going to stalemate the Islamic State. But, you know, one of the lessons we should have learned going back to the Clinton administration is when you have a safe haven, terrorism thrives, and we have to simply realize we can't afford to have a safe haven exist that's this large for this long. You saw the news of uh, Kayla Mueller. You saw that. The Absolutely. Woman, the woman who was seized, we now know that she was made a... Um, uh, she was a rape victim of, uh, I guess it was Baghdadi, huh? Absolutely. And again, what we need to recognize is we can talk all we want about the grievances which caused the Islamic State, but it's not politics in Baghdad which is motivating them. We can't have this back and forth about whether it was um, Bush's fault or Obama's fault. The fact of the matter is al-Qaeda and that ideology precedes them both. And the lesson we need to learn is that whenever there's a safe haven, this ideology will thrive. Um, it I mean, to say that it's all based in former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's dysfunction explains nothing about why the Islamic State is in the Sinai Peninsula or in Libya. We've got to deal with the greater ideological threat and throw out this notion that all of this terrorism is caused by political grievance. Got it. Terrific. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you, for the articles you sent ahead of time as well. Our, our friend Michael Rubin.